Of the Thames Valley. Hey, what's happening? Hey, brother, what's up? This is a big party, man.
morning and welcome to The Big Question. I'm Rani Singh and with me is the MD of River, River Radio, Sam City. Welcome, Sam. Good morning, Rani. Now, this is called The Big Question, this show. And so the big question today is about my guest, what's happening in the news internationally and nationally. And now I introduce my guest, Terry Marsh. She's a world-class performer. She's a big name, a legend in TV and a big name in women in science and tech. Uh, hi, Terry. Hi, uh, lovely to speak to you, Rani. Now, Terry, uh, I want to, um, it's good to have you here. I want to introduce you to the listeners. Terry, you ran a million pound television department at the BBC and uh, probably a million pound or million dollar, uh, well, uh, sci fi channel when you were vice president there. You live not too far from the Thames Valley area. And we played that song, which was your choice, because it's going to be connected to one of the news stories later on, isn't it? Yes, yes. Marvin Gaye with his uh, house band, the Funk Brothers. It's yes. the first one he produced, actually. Is it? Um, yeah, great, great track. And it really fits with the story I want to talk about later. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you. Well, um, we're going to go straight into your amazing life. Um, and looking at the present, you're, you've, you, you really, as I said, are such a big name in television. You're still chair of the London Committee of the Royal Television Society, aren't you? It's a charity to do with the art and science of TV, of course. And it really is the place to go for TV. They do the RTS Awards every year, of course, and we see all the names winning and and you had me on the committee for a few years and you've been involved with that for over 20 years yes um, i moved on from being chair to uh, running the young technologist of the year being chair of that so i, I slid off uh, to do that uh, rani so i'm uh, sorry i didn't keep you up to date on that but that's a great one and we have and and for the first time we've got a lot of women uh, entering which is great this year this has been a this has been a mission of yours throughout your career and a real signature of yours as well. Apologies for not getting the chair bit right, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure chair chair title no chair title. You're still the doyen of the Royal Television Society <laughs> and certainly the London Committee. All of us really look to you because we know you're the mover and shaker wherever you are. Um, uh, now, apart from the Royal Television Society, you're also working with Radio Marsden, based in Sutton Hospital, that was established in the late 1960s. Tell me about it, please. Um, well, I'm uh, head of uh, recruitment and training there, and as you can imagine, you know, over the last uh, year, 18 months, uh, things have been very different. We've been broadcasting from home, but but we're based in the Sutton site of the, the Royal Marsden, uh, broadcasting to those studios and online as well. Um, very much, um, we've had a lot of feedback with regard to how it's great to hear uh, human voices talking and responding to people's requests for uh, different tracks. And um, the Hospital Radio Association, of course, is the overarching brand. Uh, but um, uh, we know at Radio Marston we're, we're very keen to be bringing on youngsters, you know, and in fact, a number of youngsters that we brought on have then moved on into um, professional radio, which is great. But uh, uh, there are people like me, of course, who that's not the aim is to is to um, give back. Uh, and I think mostly people want to give give back to a hospital that is wonderful, that has done such great things, leading edge things, actually for um for those with cancer 
That's right. And I believe that uh, when you started off, it was only going from around four hours a day. You've built it to something that goes, uh, a station that goes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you've built a presentation team so that uh, the number of women, another kind of signature of yours throughout your career is uh, is really... Yes, that certainly, um, you know, has been while I've been head of recruitment and training. But I've only been there four years. I mean, the guys who've been there like 30 years or so have certainly built the numbers over time, you know. Um, uh, There's always a certain amount of uh, new people coming through, but because of uh, COVID, we've got a bit of a backlog now, so there's some busy training going on now that we're allowed two people in the studio. Hooray! Wow. And yes, as you said, just to go back a little bit, um, uh, hospital radio is a great place for people to start, um, and it's really another signature of yours is that you've you've always given back even when in even from your early days you're always outward looking and though you 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 are at the top of your profession and have hit it so many times in in whichever branch you went into um it's it's quite remarkable that you've been so outward facing and helped me in my career but um Marsden of course is very well known for it's um, pioneering work on cancer. And Terry, you uh, have another link to the Marsden, which um, on a more personal note, I wonder if you can tell us about that. Um, yes, back in, um, back in March, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was very lucky it was a stage one, but it was um, invasive lobular, which is worth people knowing about, which is the flat cancer. You know, we get told to look for bumps. No bumps in invasive lobular. Um, So I was very lucky in that I had rung up and said, oh, I think it's time for a um, mammogram. And I went, oh, yeah, all right, then come on in. And uh, the mammogram found it. And within within a couple of weeks, I was at at the Marsden and, um, uh, you know, very, very quickly. And I finished my radiotherapy uh, on Thursday. Wow. Went out for a champagne. <laughs> a friend bought me a bottle of champagne, but I said, look, I'll have one glass. <laughs> Congratulations. How are you feeling now? Oh, great, thanks. Yes, they warn you that, you know, after after radiotherapy, you might feel a bit rough for the next three or four weeks. But, uh, yeah, I'm feeling fine. And and, and, and I'm not going to deny that, that um, uh, it could change. But, uh, uh, you know, um, just got to look after yourself for those few weeks afterwards. I think that's the main thing. Yes, I didn't even know about that until you told me recently. So um, that it, it, you do have a very... It's ironic that the place that you're training people up is the same one that you're... Actually, you've been treated yourself. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very pleased that I could go back into, as it were, my home hospital because leading edge throughout the world, actually, throughout the world. Now, Terry, uh, going back to your childhood, it was quite peripatetic, wasn't it? You moved around a lot as a child. How come? Yes, well, my father was in the Navy, so I had a, I was born in Australia, in, in Arbroath. My sister was born in Australia, and my other sister was born in America. Um, so we, we moved around a lot um, uh, because in the Navy, you ever, only ever get a six-month six tenure if you don't take a Navy house. Um, so I think I lived in 20, 24 different houses along the way. Um, you know, my a lasting image of my dad sat beside a great big box packing up the house yet again. Uh, <laughs> was he a big figure in your life, like a, yeah. a role model? Yes, yes, yes. He, he was... Um, 
you know, he, he, he liked to make a bit of a noise, I know, uh, and which I think I probably picked up on myself. Um, but um, uh, funnily enough, and I don't think you know this, Rani, um, I sent him the job advert to be the um, head of uh, education at the BBC once he was leaving the Navy as an oh. admiral, he was retiring. I said, oh, look, this job looks interesting to you. And about six months later, I said, he came back to me and he said, um, guess who's going to be your new boss? <laughs> <laughs> your dad. So, yeah. Wow. So I moved out of the department, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I moved to play school. Ah, well, we can go to play school um, directly if you want, but um, I think it'd be nice for listeners to know what you did before play school. So how did you get in? What did you do um, after you studied? What did you do at uni? Um, I I did an education degree with maths and physics um, and then disappeared off to Trinidad for two years where my first daughter was born because I was married to a pilot who got a job out there. Um, uh, when we came back, I started a little nursery school because the one had closed nearby um, uh, for the two children. And then um, I started a master's at Surrey University and they realised that I understood all the statistics. So they said, why don't you come and teach all the students who hate statistics? <laughs> so I ended up teaching eight hours worth of statistics to people who dislike statistics, you know, like the geographers and the economists and the sociologists. <laughs> there was a little story. Uh, I wonder if you can briefly tell it to me about how you went, you went and became an academic. Um, about well, 30 seconds. Uh, I was, uh, my, my husband had a workshop um, where he made bespoke parts for fancy cars in, um, as a sideline to being an airline pilot, obviously. Um, and he, his workshop was at the bottom of the Stag Hill where Surrey University is. So I, I went up and I just thought, oh, I'm just going to look around the university, see what's what. Uh, my daughter's second daughter's just about to start school. Anyway, when I came back, you know, it was interesting to look around. I came back and when it was then, then I realised that I'd lost my keys, and um, so I tried to retrace my steps. And if you know Surrey University, retracing your steps it's impossible to find your way around Surrey University. And I ended up coming back a different route, and passed um, sociology department masters in um, social research data analysis. And since mathematics. And statistics was my background. I went in and they said, well, we started last week, but if you want to join in, turn up on Friday. And that's how I got on the master's course. And then because I was acing all the maths, um, they asked me to teach the statistics uh, to the students, you know, the following year. And how did you get from academics to uh, to the BBC, to... Um to the head of schools programming well, department. That was um, that was another sort of funny story. In that, um, you, you know, if you're if you're just a, a contractor to a university, uh, they will renew your your um, contract eventually. But me, I didn't understand that, so the contract wasn't renewed. So I started looking for other jobs, and I saw this job at the BBC that wanted exactly the software that I was doing and teaching because I, I I taught people to work to work the prime computers at the time for data analysis. They wanted exactly the same. Um, so I applied to it. And on the day I got offered the interview at the BBC, the contract came through for Surrey. I thought, oh, no, this is a bit too much fun. Uh, <laughs> but, 
to, to do that. And my friend came round and knocked at the door when I got off the job and I said I wouldn't do it because I couldn't. Um, she said, no, I'll take your children after school. You have to do that job. Go and do it. Do it for three months. If you can't bear it, that's the end of that. No, no love lost, you know. So then I was in the BBC for 17 years. <laughs> there you go. I think Sam's actually got some play school, uh, something to do with play school that he's got up for us. Oh, um. yes. <laughs> Here we go. A little bit of play school. And after the rain, look up in the sky. A rainbow. Can you sing a rainbow? Red and yellow and pink and green. Purple and orange and blue. I can sing a rainbow. Sing a rainbow. Sing a rainbow. Oh, I, that, that really got me. That really got me. How do you feel when you hear that? Uh, it's fun to hear the stories and the, and the way of speaking. I mean, Cynthia Felgate, was, uh, who was the executive producer, was, was very uh, forceful about the fact that you were talking to an individual child. And when you were directing, because you learned to direct the studio on that show, you... Um, you want to do lots of cutting, you know. She said, "Just move the camera, zoom in, and uh, and pan, etc." Because the child doesn't want to be disorientated by fancy cutting. Uh, so she she was she was a wonderful woman, actually, Cynthia Belgate, and um, she was very keen to do uh, the week that you starred on, wasn't she, uh, Rani? That's right, the India Week. You you. You brought me on to children's programs a few times, and my memory is that um, uh, it was so wonderful to work on children's programs. I, I went right to see, through to see Beebe's till a few years ago, and as you say, it was one child that was the focus, and I have lovely memories of the play school studio and sitting on those square square cushions, mm -hmm. and there would be the windows, the round window, the square window... Um, and and then, as you say, the camera would come to us. So, and I think I moved. I didn't. I I do a song through one window and then go to another cushion for the story. Is that how it worked, or did I say? Yes, anything? yes. We moved you around a bit. Yes. yes, we had we had four cameras, and occasionally we could afford a fifth ikigami. But uh, <laughs> that, that, now now I, I I was watching a show last night. Um, Mock the week. Oh, he said, look into camera seven and speak. And I just think, how many? <laughs> cameras that they got nowadays because I mean we're in a different world we're in a completely digital world it's very exciting uh, all the changes well, that have happened Terry you're currently being broadcast live to Facebook and YouTube while we're talking <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is play school was was a big thing is a big thing uh, Terry and because you recorded it was recorded but it was as for live so we had yeah. to be perfect as perfect as we could be so for somebody coming into television starting off in kids programs which is what I was doing it was the most brilliant training ground because everything had to be spot on and it was only if we fluffed um, that then there would be a retake but I don't think any of you were too 
happy about retakes. It had to be as for live, recording as for live, as we say. And it made stars of so many people, like Fluella Benjamin. I yes, get the Baroness now, yes. Baroness the Great. But everybody remembers her for, for, from yes. play school. Um, and uh, then, of course, one of your... I mean, what else? Tell me what else you did at uh, Kids TV before I go to a special programme. No, I moved from there, having done As Live, which you're talking about, to directing live studios um, for a different department doing programmes about IT. And um, uh, you, as you can imagine, back in the day, we, uh, uh, doing programmes about computers in the days when the computers were so clunky, <laughs> it's likely that things could go wrong. And um, they did occasionally, but that's why it was so. Um, that's why it was so important to be doing the shows live. And uh, I remember I I directed the first live um, international mobile phone call from oh. someone on the top of a, a, a skyscraper in New York to um, Leslie Judd. Oh, and, uh, she was she was driving a little C five. You you probably don't even remember what a C5 was. I think I do. Leslie Judd, of course, was a presenter on Blue Peter, wasn't she, later yes, on? Yes, yeah, yes. but she was a presenter on our show there as well, yeah. uh, on, on Microlife. Yeah. And she was driving this tiny little electric car, which has taken many years to become uh, de nos jours. <laughs> <laughs> and also you did something quite amazing. When was it you did, about, you did uh, the education to do with SEX? Sex education series. Yes. We had, Sorry, we, uh, I do you do realise this is before the watershed? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I whispered um, it. <laughs> I did it with a wonderful producer, deaf producer, called uh, Karina Marchant. Okay. Um, and her dog uh, Skipper. Um, she, uh, she understood the music through feel and chose all the music that would go with the show and wrote, wrote the scripts, directed it and everything. And we won um, a European award for it because... Um, it was it was very focused on both male and female, you know. Um, it was not just all you know, all the sperm racing, you know. It was <laughs> the egg just waiting for them to come. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were well known for uh, you are well known for pioneering sex education in schools for, and for children from the female perspective, aren't you, uh, Terry? What was your budget at uh, schools? My budget for a TV program. Mm, for a TV program, and what kind of budget were you handling overall? Like, how many? Oh, I mean, millions? about t- ten, ten million. I, I mean, it's hard to remember, but I think about ten million pounds. And I mean, in those days, it's interesting. The average cost of a program was about a hundred thousand an hour. Wow! But because of digital digitization now, you know, uh, uh, the costs have come way down, and people can make. Program well, people can make something on an iPhone and it'll be broadcastable because the quality is so good. Yes, so, um, uh, very very different. Now tell me, buying Thunderbirds for BBC <laughs> was that expensive? Was there a lot of negotiation there? Um, I think they thought I was bonkers. Really, we just decided to buy an episode of Thunderbirds to translate it into a number of different languages to help children in the school to understand that there were different languages so it's for youngsters and um, British I think children we did it in we did it in Hindi and French and Welsh and Welsh of course yes we did it in Welsh there as you well. go we just to it. remind you Terry <laughs> and um, 
uh, and of course you you narrated uh, 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 your one didn't you which was which was such fun you know i got more publicity for that i felt so guilty i was sitting in bbc white city in in one of your sub offices at that time which was open plan and i got and i i think i'd blabbed actually i have to confess i think i blabbed terry and i didn't want to tell you and uh, suddenly it was all over the red tops all over the papers that rani singh voicing the f- vo- uh, lady penelope in hindi because <laughs> thunderbirds is such a cult show isn't it yeah absolutely yes and you made a fantastic lady penelope thank you i love her actually uh, she's a role model for terry, me terry is there any way we can get archive footage of any of that <laughs> um I, i do have connections at the bbc still because i left a while ago um what the funny thing is you need a you need a costing code obviously to be able to order up stuff and uh, so it's just a case of someone who will lend me a bit of a costing code <laughs> sort of because everything is internal market now you know yes. uh, as as you understand uh i i'll see what i can do Okay. Thank you. We're going to have Thunderbirds as a running theme. Now just turning to uh thanks Sam for that. That again gets me when you play that uh, theme tune. Does it does it get you Terry? Dun, 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 dun. Sorry, wasn't it from yes. um, from one of the from one of the um play schools, yes. Yes. Terry, I was telling I was telling Ronnie last week that actually round where we live in Bray is where Jerry Anderson and his wife lived and uh, in Bray uh is Lady Penelope's grave unfortunately but it is where she is buried. Oh my goodness me. Yes. I'm, and 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 the blue plaque should be on the door. I'm sure well, Anderson shouldn't it. Which well, should be. I, I'm not sure it is, but the pub where they used to have the driver Parker so the character Parker was actually in the local village pub where I live. And uh, he was an ex-con who came out and he was from London and he did talk like that and he was like, my name is and right. And that's what Jerry Anson based Parker on. Oh, how fun. How fun. <laughs> <laughs> Now, moving on for the next few minutes to science and tech, STEM, women in STEM, um, that you, you is, is another of your big things. You're actually chair of the Winchester Science and Planetarium. And is that the biggest planetarium in the UK or something? Um, I think, yes, yeah, it's the biggest digital planetarium. Um, uh, I, I, I moved on from that a year or two ago, um, but... Um, made sure that we got in place a fantastic new director ben who is having to obviously they're having to manage all of this lockdown unlock lockdown and but he has turned it into a really up to date and modern excellent place and uh, it was uh, when i when i first was on the board of trustees you know they said would i join because they would like a lady on the board of trustees mm. so <laughs> So uh by the time I left you know there was uh five four or five I think women on that so so we're talking I'm going to talk now about um when you became vice president of the Sci-Fi Channel but I am interested in numbers because I've got you at the end of the uh I can see you and I've got you at the end of the line now so how, what was your budget at the Sci-Fi Channel Oh to, to be honest I I'm sorry uh, Ronnie I don't know that I can answer that Okay that's fine um, that's fine but it was a budget we we transmitted um i was vice president europe and we transmitted into various countries in europe but we also and in those days it was quite fancy bounced the signal twice down to south africa wow and, uh, so it, it wasn't in the title europe and south africa but it, but we also uh, 
broadcast down in South Africa as well. You had some and stunning... I learned the wonders of buying from Hollywood their movies. You know, they give you a pile of old B-movies and say, so you've got to have these if you're taking that one. You know? oh. That's how Netflix started, Terry. Yeah. Well, yeah. so Netflix, when it first started, they wanted to get... It was the guys who had uh, Blockbuster and they wanted to get yeah. s- this online digital thing going. And they couldn't get it unless Hollywood said you had to have all the B-movies. If you ever look at Netflix the early days, it had all the trashy movies that no one ever, ever saw. But they had to build that catalogue out before they could get the the good stuff. It's really interesting because I'm quoted in a book about digital television saying how ridiculous it was that the finance guy insisted we played them. No, no, no. That's just the rubbish over there. We'll amortise the costs over the good stuff, you know? Exactly. Oh, no, they wanted to make us play it because it would only work that way. I said, you know, that was one of my beefs at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you you had some stunning shows on the Sci-Fi Channel, didn't you? You did all sorts of things with Star Trek and and talk, tell me about the shows. Well, um, the we, I, I was quite pleased we did some originals as well. You know, we, we, we actually filmed some... Uh, fancy stuff and it was great to go out on location and watch that but we you know we we managed to get some some of my old favorite shows like wonder woman and six million dollar man as well oh, you know, yes my son boundaries you know <laughs> that was my sunday afternoon that was me as a kid you know just watching those two back to back yeah 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 absolutely great fun yes <laughs> were you involved with blake seven at all then being on the sci-fi channel uh, no, no, I wasn't. Um, I was there for uh, not a large amount of time because I then got head-hunted to go somewhere else after that. So I was only there for a year or two, I think. Oh, OK. Um, Which... uh, and uh, so, so sometimes I would move from place to place because somebody would come and say, we want you to come and do this as well. Uh, but but I, I, so I would see myself as, as sort of a bit of a, an entrepreneurial, set things up, and then once it's business as usual... Uh, move on you know let let people take over which brings us on to um well we can we can have an we can have another song in here now um which uh there's a beatles song isn't there that would be good to play at this stage um perhaps and and this has this is has, has got a special meaning for you terry hasn't it why do you want this track um, I think what you're going to play is the one that John Lennon is yes. saying yes. is his first yes. sort of yes. real proper grown-up work of art, as it yes. were. Yes, yes. Um, uh, it's interesting because of John Lennon, but I love it because it is so emotional. You know, there are friends from my past um, that mean so much to me, uh, and some in particular really warm my heart. You know, it's just a lovely track okay Love them all. 
people and things that went before I know I'll often stop and think about them That makes you think you're telling me of all the people in your life. That's right. Yes, it's, it's a great track. And um, it, it's lovely for its arrangement as well. Yes. It's, an arrangement is sometimes a good percentage of a track's beauty, isn't it? Yeah. And you uh, sort of forward introduced uh, very nicely your next um, position that you, you were headhunted into the as executive director of... Uh, a community interest company called Women in Science and Engineering, WISE for short. Uh, so this promotes, the, uh, the uh, encourages girls to come into, um, obviously, those areas. So tell me about that time. Princess Anne was your pa- is your patron, or was your patron? Um, uh, yes, Baroness Platt was our patron. The irony on that one was, that as 20 years previously, or about, I had been in to film Baroness Platt, um, who was saying she was going to have a year of uh, encouraging women into science and engineering. And she said, oh, a year won't work. It might last about five years. Anyway, many years later now, because I think that was 1980-something, many years later, we're still trying to encourage girls to stick with physics, you know, because the, of, of those, back, uh, the quote that I used to say was of those who girls who do really well in in science or physics at GCSE level, 92% turn away from physics A level. Mm. Um, Now that number has possibly gone down more recently, you know, because I I left WISE a little while ago. Um, But um, I managed to rebrand it to sort of bring it up to date. And then um, as I was leaving, we we re-merged. We merged it into another organisation based in Bradford, which now not only tries to encourage girls into it, but but also looks after women in science and engineering, you know, uh, over and above the fact that we were mainly concentrated at the time on uh, youngsters, Mm. uh, young women. Thanks. It's a really... um, encouraging time and, uh, <laughs> thanks for correcting me about baroness platt but what's the princess anne link then oh sorry i i do apologize um i think i just misheard you um and uh, uh heard you say patron and i know baroness platt was one yes uh, but princess anne yes uh princess anne what what was our a sort of big patron as it were yes i had she she whilst i was running it she asked to do two events a year instead of one event a year which was which was um uh, a, a great uh, impetus for us and of course we we ended up on the front page of uh, another newspaper with that one because on her way to do something at a lovely big new school 
and the kids were so excited that she was coming. Um, there was a police chase around the back of the school. Shots were fired. <laughs> and the guy outside would just waved the car on. You're not coming here today, Princess Anne. Oh. And, and we, had to, we had to redo it because, of course, security is huge, you yes. can imagine. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when someone tried to kidnap her in the mall. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. To a taxi and kidnap her. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, her security was very tight. Thanks for that story. She was um, very, very devoted. She was very, I think she would have been an engineer herself if she could have been. I remember you telling me, her about, uh, telling me about that story at the time. And then, of course, you went and you handled a two multi-million pound project for the Department for Education and, and Science. But um, I, I really am interested in, in how you see the future. Are we going to see a shift, you think, Terry, with more education delivered through digital media? I mean, you did touch on how you see the future of TV um, earlier on on in the conversation. Um, I mean, it was quite interesting when you talk about future. I think, talking about the future, things that you don't expect happen almost overnight. The iPhone, effectively. Things that you do expect... 20 years later, I'm still talking about a, a digital educational uh, opportunities because we launched one, um, Memo to Self, never launch a new channel over a millennium, <laughs> especially with Y2K. We went live uh, on a, a satellite broadcast, uh, which was also interactive um, educational resources um, on the 12th of January, 2000. And, uh, you know, we were working. I don't think we didn't get New Year's Day off or anything, but um, the buzz of going live, obviously, uh, starting a new ch- channel, it w- was great fun. But um, so, so it's really hard to predict what is going where. I mean, one thing I would say is I, I think there's still an issue of how people learn digitally, and the fun bit of the learning experience must tie in with the key points you're trying to teach. I mean, I'll just say a, a simple little example. Um, we were doing something, and in this little image, there was a dog busy wagging his tail, and, you know, that was all, the animation was all around the dog. And I said, well, what are we trying to teach them, that dogs wag their tails when they're happy? No, no, we're trying to teach them the word for glass of wine. But what? So why is the animation happening over there with the dog? <laughs> Uh, you, you know, but but they had they had a dog that wagged its tail animated wise, and they put it in there and it tr- detracted the attention elsewhere. You Just know? because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, well, that that should be emblazoned <laughs> on every educational possibility online. Um, but of course, we we now you can you can you can get uh, lectures from Stanford University just by signing up. You know. Um, and in fact, online, I've been teaching online um, during lockdown, uh, various companies in the west of England, creative companies that are wanting to scale up. And we did a whole course. There's benefits to that um, because people did turn up you know, because it was easy just to get hold of the computer and they did interact very well. Um, but but finding effective ways to make people not only attend and understand it at the time, but retain what 
what they're doing or at least know how to get back to it. Because in the end, you're not trying to fill people with facts. You're trying to fill them with the ability to find facts and to find out how. So, um, and online, of course, is wonderful at that. I spend the whole time on Google checking things. (laughs) (laughs) Terry, just before you go on, Ronnie, has COVID made a difference, you think, to online digital learning? Because kids have had to adapt and teachers. Is, you know, uh, the opportunity of COVID something that you would now have looked at and said, yeah, now may be the right time to launch a digital uh, education service? I used to make a living from showing different companies how a digital education service doesn't make sense financially. I mean, they would bring me in and I would draw up all the spreadsheets and whatever, and they at the end of six months, they'd say, thank you very much, and move on. I would move on. Um, they are, well, the short answer to that is no, I don't think so. I mean, the stress uh, for... It doesn't take account, if you think about it, it doesn't take account of people's individual learning styles and individual learning capabilities to the same extent as being in a room with people can. Um, Having said that, more people now will be working from home, but that whole interactivity with people uh, is not, not... quite so easy and and you do get people you know who actually have physical responses to that amount um there was a a woman on the courses that i was doing um who would say um after an hour i'm going to have to switch off my screen i'm sorry uh i will still be there but i just get a migraine from it for too much so Mm. it allows us i I think your question sam is probably it does allow us to rethink but i think that rethinking is not going to say ah that was good this is obviously going to be incorporated uh, as is. I think the thinking has to go t- deeper than that. And individual differences, which we are learning to take much more account of now, uh, come r- rapidly into play when you're doing things remotely. Yeah, the only reason I mention is my daughter did was should have done her GCSEs. Obviously, they weren't there. But she learnt faster and quicker at home because she had the access to video information on YouTube and, and and what I was taking away from that was this, you know, I, I'm the teacher at the front and I tell you what to do, open to page 7,766 and look at boring text compared to my daughter going, wow, this is brought to life by a video that tells me exactly what this book's about. Um, her, her learning was much quicker. And that's why I asked about digital learning and, and maybe learning from home. She found it much Simpler, no school uniform, straight to the desk and off she went. That really worked for her individual learning style, didn't yes, it? Yeah. But, it but it won't work for for others, perhaps. Exactly. You know? um, and, and in fact, uh, my grandson doing A-level for his A-level physics, he got sent out of the room um, by the teacher because he was always talking, really. And um, I said, oh, for goodness sake, you're going to miss so much. He says, no, I go to the library and I learn it all by myself. It's a lot easier. Yeah. Talking of learning and uh, going somewhere, let's go to America, Terry, if I can do a mind switch here, because I know you're heavily into American current affairs and politics. And obviously with President Biden coming to Europe this week, Biden's been in the news. So um, uh, we're going to play a track you've suggested and you'll tell us the reason why in a minute. Here's a little bit of Robbie Williams. Oh, yes.
That video is something to watch with uh, these uh, females um, dressed either as Bolshoi ballet dancers in sort of fairly scantily clad, but also going up on point. And then him in uh, Williams in uh, sort of Cossack and various various Russian uniforms. What, you mean yeah. Robbie was being subtle, was he? <laughs> it's quite spectacular. You like yeah. that video, don't you? Another Terry. track where the arrangement really makes it, doesn't it? Yes, you know, yes. Just, I really love that with with all that orchestral background. What's the reason you chose that, Terry? Well, I I I, I chose it because I love it as relating to the uh, Biden uh, Putin meeting that happened uh, earlier in the week. I mean, remind I me where that was, was. It was Geneva. It was it was uh, not in the UK. It was just over the water. Yes, in yes. Geneva. Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, I think um, it was Biden really wanted to show 
Putin that there was a, a new perspective, a new a, a, a new guy, you know, coming in with a different way of looking at things. And they had a pretty long discussion, I think, three or four hours. And interestingly enough, had separate um, had separate press conferences afterwards because they didn't evidently his minders didn't want the optics of them both being on an equal stage together and the possibility that um, Putin might um, might go rogue on them. (laughs) Wasn't Uh, it also because they wanted to be very carefully they were stage managing this and I think it came from the Kremlin that they didn't necessarily wanted want to be seen as in being in lockstep at this stage it was very much a Hello, how, you know who are you, and a sort of uh, a sort of assessment always of each other, particularly of Pu- of Biden by Putin, and isn't isn't that another reason they didn't want to be do a joint I, that, one? That, 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 yes, yes, Putin would have had a certain amount of power in this. Uh, yes, seeing it from a different perspective, um, but uh, I think it was it was um, important that Biden mentioned the whole. Um, you, you know the the, the ability to the the Russian hacking and the cyber security side of things, and just just the mild threat. You know we have possibilities too. You know, <laughs> and they got the money back after that um, pipeline hack, didn't they? They got a lot of the money back. Uh, the, the head of um, uh, the, the cyber security in the U.S. was glad to announce. Okay, they paid the ransom, but haha, we found it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Putin's famous though for his meetings. He did one with a- uh, Angela Merkel where she hates dogs, and he yeah. brought his black Labrador in and let the Labrador sniff around her, and which yes, yes. totally put her off. Which is the other reason why Biden was not prepared to let him play those mind games on this meeting as well. No, I th- I th- that is that is very true. That mind games. Well, you've got to think of Putin's background. You know, KGB, KGB. Yeah. I mean, he was a guy. Who, you know, he would have fitted in very well in the whole Killing Eve scenario. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was based on him. <laughs> it was also interesting Putin's comments because just post the post the um, the the meeting to the Russian press mainly, and of course he was playing to Russia. He said something like. Biden is a professional salesman or something like that, didn't he? And he, uh, he, but then when, but later on, um, CNN actually reported, uh, the London correspondent reported that there was a slightly more reflective comment perhaps that came out from Putin saying that Biden actually is a professional and he knows what he's doing. And if if you're going to get a constructive, positive comment from Putin, that was as close as as it got. So it was really interesting to hear that afterwards, I think. Because, of course, Biden has spent four years in the White House already before yes. he came in as, as, as president, you know. I think, I think that's um, really interesting that, that Biden referred to the, the two great powers, you know. So he acknowledged there was a great power that he was involved with. Um, and and he knew that that was an important thing to do pretty early on in his presidency, is go eye to eye, eyeball the guy, you know, and say, this is me, you know. So um, the, the the details of what went on in that room for that number of hours may come out with history later. 
Interesting that it was scheduled for up to four or five hours and it only lasted three, but job done, I suppose. They, they, and neither yeah. of them got invited back to each other's gaff. <laughs> Strange, well. that. <laughs> the, the transcript I really want to have is the previous meeting of the president with uh, Putin, Trump uh, and Putin. I would love the transcript um, of that. Yes, I think yes. it would have been a one-way. Now, here's my orders. Off you go, <laughs> Mr. Trump. Absolutely, yes. Um, I've been seeing on Twitter somebody uh, complaining that um, the, the the Hill, uh, which is one, uh, another Twitter that I've tweet that I follow, um, has been uh, publicising some of the things that Trump's been saying recently. And somebody came back and said, "Look, just stop giving him airspace. You know, just just leave it alone, let it start to fade." But the the irony is, um, you know who knows whether that is going to start to fade because there are at least three TV channels that are whipping up the, the hysteria even more so um, about stop steal. I listened to Rachel Maddow's podcast, mm -hmm. a fabulous podcast. Yep. If you want to listen to American politics, she puts everything in historical context, which is, which is really worth listening to. I know you're really um, interested in American current affairs and current affairs in general, naturally. Um, and we will, after 11 o'clock, we will carry on to talk more about what's in the news. But uh, I just wanted to let you know, Terry, that next week uh, we're going to have, and the listeners, of course, we're going to have on a squadron leader from the RAF, Royal Air Force, British mm -hmm. Royal Air Force. And um, he's been in theatre. In, in, he's been in the first Gulf War in northern Iraq, in Afghanistan, squadron leader Amir Khan. He's heavily medalled. He's um, got the Order of St. John. And he provided the medical air support for um, for lots of theatres of conflict. So I'm looking forward to hear his hearing his music choices for a start. But um, he's uh, I've known him for a number of years, but there's a, there's a link between the RAF and you, which I thought that would be very interesting for the listeners to hear about, because it sort of segues nicely into... Amir coming on next week. Yes, um, the, the RAF, uh, we got in touch with the RAF, they got, we, we bumped into each other at an event, and uh, Glyn Dean um, was in the RAF doing diversity at the time, and we started to run uh, residential courses for 15 and 16-year-old girls to go to their training establishments and get hands-on. I mean, the the... the, the the pictures that we made a video of it in the end of the, these girls climbing all over these training air aircraft um, into the cockpit, taking off bits, making sure those bits went on and were still controllable from the cockpit. They really got a feel for uh, hands-on type engineering, as well as uh, some of them, the digital side, etc. And they would stay there and they ended the week with a, with a lovely dinner, you know, a celebratory dinner. Um, and that ended up being a model for them to run for other underrepresented groups within the RAF, and it, and and we, we ended up doing it with the um, with the Navy as well. Uh, they they got to sleep on board ship. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, um, we're coming up to the close, so uh, I am going to ask Sam to play a track. Um, I'm thinking, uh, Sam, isn't there something from? Um, Alexander Burke, which we'll probably play, or maybe one of the other ones. Um, uh, I know the Bananarama, maybe Bananarama, I think, and then we'll we'll hear um, later on why 
Terry's chosen that. But I think it's also important, I say a very big thank you, Terry. I, I really, you've done, you're not just a friend to me, but you've, uh, it's been lovely to have you on as my first guest to launch this series, The, the Big Question. And uh, I, I don't know whether I should really be nasty and, and ask you this or not, but if we ever ask you one again, would you please? Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and it's and it's been lovely to be doing a, a remote radio show in where I can see people as well. Yeah. So um, that, that's an absolute pleasure, and then I must invite you down to Radio Marston. You can come and join my Saturday brunch. I would love to. I would love to. Ten o'clock. Yes, I would love to. Yes, you do several shows, and you played a track for me on Radio Marsden over the rainbow just recently, so thank you for that. Um, So thank you to Sam, Sam Sirti, MD of River Radio, for joining me and co-hosting today. And as I said, next week on The Big Question, we'll be having um, squadron leader Amir Khan to talk about his amazing life, and uh, which is uh, continuing with the RAF, because he's still very active. But uh, Terry Marsh, it's been a real pleasure and an honour to have you on for the first sh- guest show with a guest on on the big question. So thank you very much indeed, and I do hope you'll you'll come and visit us again. So thank you. And we're playing out with Banana Rama, and um, you'll tell us why at some point in the future. Maidenhead, Maidenhead. Bracknell, Bracknell.